is Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country. And we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers, John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home. And Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. 
The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, Someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues... Here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a gem. It turns out diamonds haven't always been rare stones. Since 1870, when huge diamond mines were discovered in South Africa, soon after that discovery, the British financiers behind the South African mining effort realized the diamond market would be saturated if they didn't do something about it. So in 1888, they set two audacious goals. One, monopolize diamond prices by creating De Beers mines. De Beers would then be able to stabilize the market by creating both the supply and the demand for diamonds worldwide. Tom Zollner is a journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. He wrote the book, The Heartless Stone, A Journey Through the World of Diamonds, Deceit and Desire. Here's Tom with the story of that journey. My name is Tom Zollner, and when I was 32 years old, I entered into what is a fairly common rite of passage for a man in America. I asked somebody to marry me, and I gave her a diamond engagement ring because that's just what you were supposed to do. And I knew very little about diamonds. Um, I studied up on it as best I could. Uh, which wasn't very deep, um, and I learned that there's this tradition out there that you're supposed to spend two months of your salary as a benchmark, sort of a sliding scale for uh, what's expected, and I wanted to do what was expected, so um, I figured out what I could afford, and uh, I bought a, uh, her name is Anne, was Anne, I bought her a diamond ring. Uh, I say was because the engagement broke up and I was uh, made the owner of a used diamond ring and I learned, wow, there's really not a lot to do with this. Um, I didn't want to let go of it for emotional reasons and I also learned if I was just going to sell it back on the used market that there really is no used market. And as the ring just sort of sat there in the back of my closet, I began to wonder more and more about it, and it might have been a way of channeling the grief over the lost relationship, but I began to look into diamonds in a way that was a little bit deeper and a little bit different than, uh, than I did when I was researching what to buy. I wanted to know, well, where did this come from? And so this took me on uh, what you might call a quest. It lasted for 18 months, and in that time, I went to 16 different countries on the globe to try and understand where diamonds come from and why we hunger for them. So I'll tell you just a little bit about uh, where I went. First, I went to a place called the Central African Republic, which is a diamond-producing nation at the heart of Africa. It's one of the poorest countries on the globe. It produces... Uh, it ranks number 10 in terms of diamond production among all countries, and yet uh, it is uh, poverty of some of the worst kind, political instability of some of the worst kind. And those two things, unfortunately, go together. I went out to the back country and learned how diamonds are mined for guys who are making less than uh, a dollar an hour to uh, comb through the soil, very dangerous work, uh, sometimes in violent conditions, to find uh, these uh, pieces of carbon which are brought up to the Earth's surface through uh, these volcanic tubes of what's called the kimberlite. And so you find them in the river bottoms. It's some of the most primitive mining imaginable. And uh, some of these diamonds 
emerging from such miserable conditions still find their way to uh, the U.S. market. Uh, I went to Angola, another uh, nation in Africa, of course, uh, which has been racked with, uh, had been racked by civil war, largely funded through the, the smuggling and the sales of diamonds. Uh, I went to India, which is the headquarters, uh, the, the, state of, the Indian state of Gujarat, uh, polishes the majority of diamonds uh, in the world, and I saw the conditions in some of these factories where child labor is used to uh, get the diamonds into the glittery shape that uh, Westerners have expected. Uh, I went to Russia to uh, see the birthplace and still the, uh, the headquarters of the synthetic diamond industry, a way that uh, machines have been built to recreate the, the, the heat and the pressure and the earth's mantle that create the diamonds in the first place. And then I took a long look at the marketing history of the diamond. Um, the way that uh, these shiny pebbles have been sold uh, to Western consumers through the genius, and I say that word uh, with a certain amount of respect, but also advisedly, the genius of the corporation called De Beers Consolidated Mines which uh, cornered the market in South Africa uh, in the uh, 1890s thanks to the, uh, the scheming of an Oxford graduate named Cecil Rhodes for whom the Rhodes Scholars are, are named. Uh, Cecil Rhodes founded uh, the De Beers Corporation and, and, and hit upon the insight that the way that you create high prices uh, for these uh, for these little minerals is that you just simply create artificial scarcity in the market, which is uh, what he did and what De Beers continues to uh, try and accomplish, even though it no longer dominates the market as it did today. So it was not only a hive of artificial scarcity, it was also a, uh, a marketing factory. Uh, it was the De Beers Corporation that created this idea out of whole cloth an invented custom that a young man is supposed to spend two months of his salary on his sweetheart's engagement ring. That turns out, it, it sounds like something from Charles Dickens, but it's actually a, uh, a complete marketing fable. And it was also out of the De Beers uh, Idea Factory with the help of a New York ad agency called J. Walter Thompson. Uh, th this idea of the eternity of a diamond, the poetry surrounding this trinket. Um, I look back at some of the ads that were created in the, in the Great Depression to uh, convince American men that this is what they needed to do, just to spend money even in the midst of a depression. And the ads all centered around the idea of temporality and of mortality and of the idea that this diamond is going to survive you. It, it, it's, it's almost rather morbid. But this was a successful advertising strategy, and it was out of this notion that your diamond will last beyond you that the, that the brilliant uh, slogan was coined, a diamond is forever. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever. De Beers. So... Just to give respect where respect is due, there, there is something chemically unique about a diamond. It's, uh, as it goes on the Mohs scale of density, it is a 10 out of a 10 scale. 
almost no other mineral, in fact, no other mineral, has the ability to slow down light uh, within the chamber of uh, its interiors. This is why a diamond sparkles so well. Uh, the speed of light at 186 1,000 miles per second has slowed down to 77,000 miles per second within a diamond, which is why it sparkles. And when you polish it in a particular configuration, the, uh, the effect is, 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 is really dazzling. I'm, I, I have no issue with that. Um, but to slow down the light um, in some ways is a metaphor for the diamond itself. It is a uh, a chamber of slow light and emptiness because at the heart of the diamond, which was my conclusion, is mythology. The mythology that society has spun around it and the individual mythologies that we put around diamonds. The story we tell about them, which is in fact, in its most prominent feature, the story of our engagement, the story of our marriage, one of the most mysterious and frightening uh, and lovely and potentially heartbreaking things that we get to do. Uh, the genius of De Beers and the diamond industry was that it was able to set up a toll booth uh, right at the entrance to this adventure. And this, for me, is the true legacy of the diamond. And at the heart of the, the book uh, that I wrote called The Heartless Stone. And you've been listening to Tom Zollner, journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. His book, The Heartless Stone, my goodness, go to Amazon and get it, or the usual suspects. Heck, go to a bookstore, too. And by the way, what a story he told. And we all know, especially we men who've done this, gone and bought that diamond and coughed up that two months' worth of pay, thinking, how did we get roped into this? Not the marriage, not the engagement, but that two months of pay thing. But we all do it, if we have any sense about us. What a work of marketing by De Beers, and by J. Walter Thompson, a diamond is forever. And as our writer and storyteller told us, that diamond is a toll booth at the entrance of the most important relationship in our lives, marriage, that mysterious, lovely, and often heartbreaking relationship. Tom Zollner's story, the story of the diamond, here on Our American Story. stories and by now you know we love to bring you stories about our veterans stories that help us appreciate the truly blessed lives we live today because of the many who paid the price and lost their lives in war in the past our own joey cortez brings us a story of a young man who learned this lesson as a young boy and who started a very special project as a junior in high school to help americans understand the gift our veterans have given us my name is Rishi Sharma. I just turned 22 and I'm on a mission to meet and film interview all the World War II combat veterans of the allied countries. To date, I've interviewed just over 1,100 World War II veterans across the US, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. The root of my fascination with World War II, I think it really just came from the books I was reading. I used to go to the library often as a kid with my mom 
and I would just, you know, get these history books and I would just read them or I would see stuff like Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers on the TV. And I mean, these guys were just so cool, you know, their, their uniforms, the way they acted. It, it just all I ever wanted to be was a Marine. But when I thought of a Marine, I thought of an 18 year old with nothing but the shirt on his back and a rifle in his hands fighting in the jungles of Guadalcanal or the sands of Iwo Jima. This good versus evil fight where everything seemed so morally clear that these young kids were putting their life on the line to help liberate an oppressed people across the world and to help restore democratic values and ideals and to get rid of these evil regimes. It just seemed so clear. And as I got older, you know, I realized that the world that we currently live in is not as black and white. And... I lost interest in the military, or joining at least, but I never lost my interest and appreciation for the World War II veterans. One day, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was reading a book called Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. It wasn't just like a, a historian just writing facts and giving statistics. It, it was really just a collection of different veterans sharing their experiences. And so I uh, started looking up some of the men I was reading about just to see, you know, what did they end up doing after the war and uh, are they alive? And a lot of them were. I just started looking up some of the phone numbers for the veterans who were alive and I wanted to talk to them just, to, I guess, to say thank you. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I found a few phone numbers, in particular a man named Lyle Book who at 21 commanded a platoon that held off over 500 Germans. A platoon's about 42 men, but it was an understrength platoon, so you could say half of it. And they held off 500 Germans during the Battle of the Bulge. And that one small action contributed greatly to the overall outcome of the war. And there were so many different things that happened because he was able to hold off this advance. He was 21, some of the men were killed, and then the, all of them were captured. And, I mean, it was just amazing to read what he had experienced. And so I called him up after finding his number. You know, this lady answers the phone, and I say, Hi, um, is Lyle Book the war hero here? And, and she says, Yes, but, but he's asleep. Could you call back in the morning? And I said, Okay, yeah, sure, no worries. I called him the next morning and he was really nice. And it's not like I had anything I wanted to propose to him, like an interview or say, you know, I'm going to come here and talk to you. I just, I just wanted to talk to him. And I wanted him to know that because of his actions in a war, 70 years later, a, a kid was given a full and a free life and that I'm not the only one. And I just wanted him to know that. As I held my phone in one hand, I held the book in the other, and I was talking to him, and I was also reading his account to him, and, you know, sharing, you know, what he had said, and he was telling me some of his thoughts on that particular action, and that's when it just struck me. I'm talking to a war hero in the worst war in human history, and all I had to do was pick up the phone and call him. If I wanted to talk to some superficial, useless celebrity like the Kardashians, I'd have to go through a million people. But to talk to someone who contributed more to this world than the world gave to him, 
It, it, all I had to do was pick up the phone and call. That's when I, I really realized that how many of these men are out there, how many stories are not told or preserved. I mean, for future generations to understand why they're free and who freed them. And so then I just started doing research about oral history projects, looking up different World War II interviews, and, and it just kind of got me on a whole, just got me on a roll. I contacted some of the oral history organizations, and it was disappointing because a lot of them told me to kind of go the hell away, and they didn't want some high school kids' help, which, which was unfortunate. You know, I here I was, I just genuinely wanted to help, and they didn't want that help, and, they, and yet... These are the same kind of people who complain about the younger generations, you know? And so I felt that was quite a contradiction that here they have an opportunity with a member of the younger generation and, and, and yet they don't want to, to do anything about it. And that really pissed me off. Um, and so I figured out, you know, I wanted to figure out how to do it myself. And one thing I had noticed in a lot of the World War II documentaries, a lot of them shied around the subject of combat. They would basically just have the veterans as token placeholders to say cliche phrases like war is hell, you know, stuff like that. And, th and they expect a civilian population to understand the gravity of that. But they don't really know the reality of what these men saw and what they had to do for our freedom. And so, I mean, I, I made no bones about it. I, I said, you know, I think it's very important that people who are the benefactors of what these men had to see and what they had to do in the worst war in human history. I think it's very important that people know the truth. And so when I started to do the interviews, or I looked up the guides of how these other oral history projects did it. And, and you know, like I said, even the guide questions, they all shied around combat. And so I always felt, especially after I started to do the interviews, that we live in a world where there is a trail of blood behind us and a path of blood in front of us. And it's an uncomfortable reality, but it's the truth. And I don't care if someone in the United States is the biggest pacifist or the largest pacifist in the world. And the simple fact is that the comfortable life that they're privileged to lead on a daily basis came at a price. And it wasn't a monetary price. It just happened to be the price of human lives because in order for everything to fall into place the way it has for all of us to be here to the point where you and I are having this conversation, it meant that people had to die of the allies and the enemy of the Axis forces had to be killed. Because all those things, the way it happened, they all led to this butterfly effect of us being here today. I mean, I've always felt that way, that... Me personally, I have a debt to pay because of the life that I'm able to live. The fact is that there was someone who was my age who sacrificed his life. And I, I find it to be a direct comparison as if I was tied up on a railroad track and there was a train coming towards me and someone comes and cuts me loose right before the train. I mean, I find that to be a parallel to what the World War II veterans have done for us today. Yes, I mean, it's not like they jumped in front of a car and pushed me, but in a bigger sense or in a larger sense, they did. And you've been listening to Rishi Sharma. All I ever wanted to be was a Marine. That's what he recalls of his earliest time in life. 
And then he came upon Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. And that was it. He wanted to talk to those Citizen Soldiers. And he made that great point that if you wanted to talk to some celebrity, you had to go through layers of people. But talk to a GI, someone who fought in World War II, one layer, if that at all, a mom, a mother, a bride, a brother or sister, that's all. And last, the idea that so many of the documentaries shied away from combat itself. Usual bromides like the horrors of war or war is hell. And he wanted to get that reality so we could all understand what that hell actually was. Rishi Sharma's story continues here on Our American Story. with Our American Stories and Rishi Sharma's story. We left off with Rishi getting in touch with his first World War II veteran to thank him for his service. Let's get back to Rishi on how he got his start in interviewing these veterans to honor and preserve their stories. So after I started to contact the veterans on the phone, I wanted to meet the men in the flesh. I wanted to look them in their eyes and tell them you know, what they've done for me and so many others, and I wanted to help preserve their story. And I had to figure out, where do I find World War II veterans? And, and I couldn't figure it out. And then I was talking to my history teacher one day about it, and they said, well, why don't you try the retirement home down the street? And I thought, oh, wow, that's a genius idea. I should do that. And so then I rode my bike one day after school to this retirement home, and I just walked to the front desk and I said, hi, I'm a student at Agora High and I just would like to interview some of the World War II veterans. And she says, well, you're gonna have to talk to the director about that. So she goes into the office of the director and he comes out and he says, why don't you come in here, young man? And he asked me what I wanted to do and I explained just my gratitude for these men and I wanted to learn about what they had fought for and that I uh, just wanted to talk to them in real life. I had gotten a camera and this was my plan to, to interview them and preserve their stories. And he said, I'm so happy to see a younger person in this place wanting to interact with the greatest generation. He literally took me room to room to 20 five World War II veterans. And he introduced me to them. He let me use an empty office space to do my interviews. And it was amazing. And I just fell in love with it and I just kept doing it. Eventually, my local paper did a story about what I was doing. And people started contacting me about veterans that they knew of in my community, their dads, their grandparents, their neighbors, their friends. And I, I started to schedule appointments. This is at high school, I'm scheduling appointments. There were many times when I would actually ditch class to go do interviews because I was learning more from the veterans than I was in school. One of the early veterans who I interviewed that I was close to, he, he, he was actually, he was, a, he, was a really, he was at that retirement home I mentioned earlier. He was, he was really one of my most closest friends when I started out. He was in the army 
He was a, an officer who fought with the 27th Division, which is the New York National Guard. And he fought in the Battle of Saipan, which doesn't get talked about enough, but that actually is where the Japanese had the largest bonsai attack, which is like a suicide attack where they basically just charge you. It was 4,000 Japanese soldiers overran the army's lines. He was a machine gun platoon leader, and his unit was on the outskirts where the Japanese made their breakthrough. And he was just telling me these stories about seeing wave after wave of Japanese come. And he was ordering his machine gunners to keep firing and to keep panning the machine gun left to right. And the Japanese bodies would stack up and stack up and stack up. And the incoming Japanese had to move the bodies of their dead comrades just to keep moving forward. But because there were so many of them, they overran the army's position, including his. He was wounded twice as well. And he seeked some refuge underneath a broken down jeep trying to pretend that he was dead. He had blood loss, and right before he passed out, thinking that he was going to die, all he was thinking to himself is this what he told me. I said, you know, what are you thinking, sir? You know, when you think you're about to die, and you're like 22. And he says, all I was thinking about was how sorry I would be for my folks, that they didn't know what happened to me, or how I died, and how upset they would be. And just how it would affect them and now they wouldn't have someone to help when it comes to the income and just how tough and how many questions they would have and how they would never know and how it would ruin their lives. And I'm thinking to myself, here's a guy who thinks he's about to die and he cares more about what his family's thinking than about the fact that he's about to die. And I'm thinking, I, I said, you know, these men are amazing. And, and that, you know, it would be interesting if that was a unique story. But the fact is, I've, I've met enough veterans that it's not unique and that many of them feel that way when they were about to, when they thought they would, would get killed. And that's just a really amazing thing. Oftentimes uh, an article from Veterans Day or Memorial Day would come up and I would just contact that veteran, explain what I'm doing. And they would always say, yeah, you're welcome to come and talk to me. I'm, I'm happy you want to know. And it just got larger and larger to the point where I graduated high school and I knew that this is what I want to do as long as I can. As long as there are World War II veterans to be interviewed, I want to be there preserving their stories because I, I know that I would be able to do it in a way that other people wouldn't. And so what, what I ended up doing was creating a GoFundMe. I kept doing the interviews and I graduated high school I created that GoFundMe and nothing happened. I would just reach out to news organizations. I would find random email addresses of reporters online and I would send them some information about what I was doing. And I, I must have sent almost a thousand emails to all these different reporters, USA Today, New York Times, LA Times. I mean, and I never heard back from anyone. I mean, the local paper did and some local TV stations did stories, but besides that, nothing. And uh, I had worked some odd jobs to raise some money for me to start traveling and it was the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor coming up and I did some more jobs. I raised some money for myself to get over there because I knew there'd be a lot of Pearl Harbor veterans. When I was at Pearl Harbor, that's when uh, CBS News did a national story about my mission. They had come and filmed me a month before, but they, they ended up airing it around Pearl Harbor uh, during the anniversary. And that GoFundMe that had no money in it went up to like 
$150,000 over two days or something. And I got like 10,000 emails from people all across the country telling me about veterans they know of or offering me a place to stay or I, I don't care what people in other countries say about Americans. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the American people on average are some of the most generous and loving people in the whole world. The fact is that so many people were willing to donate their hard earned money for to a person they didn't know, but had just seen on the news, but believed in his mission. That really meant a lot to me. And so I came back to California with all this money and with all these leads. And I told my parents, I wanted to do some interviews in some of the neighboring states and I'd be back in a couple months. And uh, I, just, I just never came back. The biggest takeaway I, I, I've gotten is just that I am able to look at the world in a very different way than most people my age because I've heard firsthand about the sacrifices that had to be made for our way of life. And it's a, it's a very personal thing at this point. And it's just, I just wish more people understood what these men had to go through, the things they had to see, what they had to endure, you know, because and it, it, these men also need people to talk to because it's hard to see your best friend getting killed and have that forever in your head. It, 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 it's just really interesting that that they, they felt comfortable enough talking to me. I think that they're happy to know that the story is not just in their head. At least there's someone out there who understands a little bit of the hell that they had to go through in the war. And, and I, I think that makes them just happy to know that they aren't alone in sharing that thought because that's a very lonely thought to know that you're the only person that knows what it's like to see you know, your friends around you falling. And so now I, I've interviewed just over 1,100 veterans in the U.S., across 45 states, Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and, and I'm still doing it. Uh, money, I don't have them. I don't have as much money anymore. I, I, I figured that I could take some loans or credit card debt or something. I mean, I, I, just, I, I just know how important it is to do these interviews because these video interviews, and it's not just my interviews, but anyone that takes the time to video a World War II veteran talking about his experiences in the war, they're giving that gift to that family so that 200 years from now, that veteran's great, 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 great grandkids not just gonna know their great, 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 great grandfather's name, but they'll get to know how he looked, the way he acted, the way he spoke, the way he laughed, the jokes he made, the stories he told, the way he pronounced certain words, certain expressions he would have. I mean, it's really giving them life. And that's the biggest privilege that I could ever have or the largest one I could ever have is knowing that I've done something to help in a small way the men who saved the world. And you've been listening to Rishi Sharma's story. What a magnificent young man. And to learn more, go to heroesofthesecondworldwar.org to donate to Rishi's GoFundMe page. That's heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. It all started with that answer. Why don't you go to the retirement home down the street? 25 World War II veterans called the place home, and Rishi was off to the races. 
he was ditching classes because he was learning more from the veterans than he did in school. And as long as there are World War II veterans, he said, I want to be there for them. And last but not least, his experience with the American people and our generosity. And the American people, the most generous and loving people in the world, giving a total stranger money because they believed in his mission. Rishi Sharma's story, the story of a Gen Zer getting in touch with the greatest generation here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorite subject, history. And all of our history stories, whether they're sports or business, military, or anything in between, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you and your family. And all of their free, terrific online courses, too, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading biographers and historians, and at the core of Ambrose's success was his simple belief that history is biography, that history is about people. Ambrose passed in 2002, but his storytelling can now be heard here at Our American Stories thanks to those who run his estate. Here's Ambrose telling the story of the year 1941, a year that would bring the United States into World War II in December after the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. As the year opened, the aggressors were on the march around the world. Mussolini had overrun Ethiopia and was about to launch an attack out of Albania that he had recently conquered down into Greece. The Japanese had taken Manchuria, had taken much of eastern China, were at war with the Red Army in Mongolia in 1939 and in 1940, and were laying plans to move even further south after their conquest in the fall of 1940 of French Indochina, moving down towards British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. So aggression was being rewarded, and especially so in Hitler's case, where at the beginning of 1940, uh, he stood astride the continent like a colossus more so even than Napoleon, more than the Holy Roman Emperors, more than Julius Caesar. He was the greatest conqueror the world has seen. At the beginning of 1941, Hitler either had an alliance with or was in military occupation of all of Europe from the Black Sea through what used to be Poland up to Lithuania. Poland had disappeared from the map. Germany had annexed the eastern two-fourths of, uh, excuse me, the western two-fourths of Poland, and the Russians had the eastern half. And so Poland was off the map at the beginning of 1941. So too for Czechoslovakia, which had been divided into protectorates under the Germans, like Bohemia and Moravia. But Czechoslovakia disappeared. Hungary was an ally. Austria, of course, had been incorporated. Italy was an ally. Hitler was about to invade Yugoslavia and in the course of the spring of 1941 would take Yugoslavia. 
Hitler had taken Denmark and Norway and Holland and Belgium and, of course, France down to the line that separated Vichy from occupied France. And Spain, of course, was an ally, and the Soviet Union was an ally. Providing Hitler with raw materials and foodstuffs that were critical to his war machine. As against this, Britain stood alone. The only nation in the world that was continuing the fight against Hitler. Meanwhile, in the United States, the argument still was between isolationists and interventionists, that is, the isolationists remained very strong, representing a significant portion of the population. Whether it was 45 or 50 or 55 percent can't be said with any accuracy, but that it was a significant portion of the population is clear enough. And it was a retarding factor in America's trying to catch up after years of neglect of our armed forces with what had happened around the world in the 1930s. To try to come up with some modern tanks, modern aircraft, come up with them in something approaching the numbers that America's potential and real enemies uh, had reached and were reaching in arms production. Expanding the personnel of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Coast Guard. All these things were beginning to happen at the beginning of 1941 in the United States, but at a snail's pace. There was not the sense of urgency in it or the sense of teamwork to it that were necessary to the kind of expansion that the times required. So the United States wasn't much of an influence on world affairs because we didn't have much firepower. Still, it was the richest country in the world with worldwide interest. And obviously, it was going to have and did have an impact on the development of events, if not at all commiserate with its size and wealth. The, the big event of the first part of 1941 was with the coming of the longer nights in the North Atlantic, the Battle of the Atlantic. The German U-boat fleet, their submarine fleet, went all out to try to blockade Britain in a resumption of what Ludendorff had started in January of 1917 and what had brought the United States into the First World War. Unrestricted submarine warfare around the British Isles. The British suffered grievously in this war of attrition. Britain could not build ships fast enough to replace those that the submarines were sinking. British countermeasures against the submarine were ineffectual, or at least insufficient. They were just beginning to bring sonar online and were beginning to improve their radar and starting to get more destroyers out there with the convoys. But nevertheless, for the most part, Admiral Dernitz, of the, the commander-in-chief of the German U-boat fleet, was winning the Battle of the Atlantic at the beginning of the Longer Nights in 1941. And this was obviously critical, just as it had been in 1917. And just as in 1917, when it had been the threat of Britain being cut off from the rest of the world that had brought the United States into the war, he's played a major role in that decision. So too in 1941, we moved very much closer to Britain and took much larger risks than Roosevelt had previously done, rather than see Britain get cut off from the world. And thus, uh, our closeness to war 
came to depend very heavily on the fate of Britain. All age short of war is what Roosevelt promised through the first part of 1941. And you're listening to Stephen Ambrose. The story of 1941 is told by the very best there is on World War II. Stephen Ambrose painting a picture of gloom of Great Britain. In America, well, the isolation is still loomed large because of World War I. And a lot of us didn't want to go back again and do it all over again. It was Britain alone. Great Britain alone fighting this war machine. Let's return to Stephen Ambrose. And Agnew won very far short of war. In the spring of 1941, he sent U.S. troops to Greenland. That meant that the British could pull their troops out of Greenland and send them to North Africa, where they had an active campaign going on. And then later in July of 1941, Roosevelt sent Marines to Iceland. They relieved the British battalion that was there, which then went down into the Middle East to fight in the desert battles. This was a full-fledged alliance, except that the United States was not a belligerent partner in it. But we weren't far short of being a belligerent um, partner in this alliance. For you, the big event of 1941 that captures everyone's attention, the invasion of the Soviet Union, by Nazi Germany and her allies. Italians and Romanians and Hungarians were all a part of this invading force. This was an invasion of Eastern Europe by Central Europe. This was the Genghis Khan in reverse. This was the greatest military operation of all time in terms of the size of the forces involved and the casualties inflicted. It was a gigantic struggle that was critical to the outcome of the Second World War. That's so obvious you feel almost foolish saying it. But this is where the Second World War was decided, on this Eastern Front, where the Wehrmacht lost eight out of every ten soldiers killed in the Second World War. <coughs> in the United States, Roosevelt typically was back and forth. He issued very um, tough orders for the Navy in the North Atlantic so that it, what, we got into what was an undeclared war. The first of these presidential undeclared wars, then the next to come was going to be Korea and then it was going to be Vietnam. But the first was the naval war in the North Atlantic in the summer and fall of 1941. Roosevelt had the U.S. Navy cooperating with the British right on up to Iceland and even beyond, working together. There were some restrictions on what Americans could do. American destroyers were not supposed to throw depth charges at German submarines. And I don't know if that was ever violated or not. What they were, however, allowed to do, and were sent to do, ordered to do, was to track German submarines and inform the British destroyers in the area where they were. And this was done, and in July, a German submarine turned on its American pursuer, a destroyer named the Reuben James, and fired a couple of torpedoes at it, and hit it, and sank it. Roosevelt was outraged. He spoke of these rattlesnakes of the Atlantic. He said that the Reuben James was on innocent passage, carrying nothing but mail to Iceland. 
all of which was, <laughs> I mean, of course they were carrying mailed Iceland, they were carrying it to U.S. Marine Division Station, on, or Battalion Station on Iceland. And they were radioing the German subs position and so on. But Roosevelt was able to present this as an innocent American destroyer out in the North Atlantic, minding its own business, and these bastardly Germans just shoot it down. And so he declared naval war on Germany. He gave the United States Navy orders to shoot on sight against German war vessels in the North Atlantic. Now let's turn to the Far East and, and as it were, see how Roosevelt managed to get America into the war as a unified nation. Something that right up till the first week of December 1941, no one thought possible. Well, in the Pacific, the Japanese were the aggressors as the Italians and the Germans were in Europe. The Japanese army had taken control of Japanese politics in the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s, primarily through political assassination. Any politician who disagreed with them, they just killed them. And pretty soon, not very many politicians would disagree with them. And their program was based on race, racial ideas of Japanese superiority and the inferiority of all the peoples around them, especially Koreans and Chinese, but to including Russians. And in fact, including everybody else too. Asia for the Asians. They didn't add that they meant Asians for certain Asians, us. They did say that all Asians are equal. They didn't add what they really meant, but some of us are more equal than others. What I'm getting to here is that the Japanese as conquerors proved to be as bestial as the Nazis were. They raped and pillaged and looted and shot and had mass executions and carried out atrocities in the footsteps of their advancing troops all through Asia. The worst country to be in in the Second World War was China, not Russia, not Germany, not even Yugoslavia, which was god-awful, not even the Philippines, which were terrible. It was China and the Japanese in China, a story that that the Japanese really have managed pretty well to, if not suppress entirely, to get most of the world to forget. In response to these Japanese advances in Asia, and especially into China, where Americans felt they had a special relationship based partly on people like Henry Luce and the missionaries, partly on the so-called China lobby in the United States, primarily West Coast, politicians and businessmen who were eager to trade with China, uh, primarily a very deep admiration that many Americans had for things Chinese. We had this special relationship with China, and from the beginning of the Japanese invasion of China, the United States have taken the position that we will not recognize these areas that you have conquered as being under your control. We insist on an open door in China. And from the first, the Americans had, as a stated principle, before anything else can happen in our diplomacy or, or in our relationship, the Japanese have got to pull out of China. Something that the Japanese were absolutely never going to do. So you had two non-negotiable positions being taken by the contending sides. 
And almost with just that sense, I can say, and so that's why we had a Second World War in the Pacific. The Japanese would not pull out of China. We would not recognize their conquest of China. If Japan wanted it, 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 to become a great power, she was going to have to conquer the natural resources she lacked on her home islands. And if she did that, she was going to get driven back by the Americans but, and the British. But she was going to get driven back anyway, she felt. And better to go down fighting, better to have taken the chance, better to have tried than never to have tried at all. Japan in, entered the war, a prince of the imperial family said later, with a tragic determination and a desperate self-abandonment. Well, in, this, in the 1941, there was no question for the Japanese they were going to extend their war. And they were going to push on with their conquest. But against whom? Yeah, they were very tempted. In June of 1941, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, Stalin had to strip down his armies in Siberia, the great Russian frontier regions, to bring troops back for the defense of Moscow so that for the Japanese, who were the traditional enemies of the Russians, the, the Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union <coughs> opened up some very tempting possibilities to strike north. And this is very oil-rich and mineral-rich country up here in Siberia. Very tempting to the Japanese. On the other hand, they were tempted to go south. The Japanese argued among themselves over this. Roosevelt, by the way, listened into the argument because it was being carried out between diplomats and the United States had broken the Japanese diplomatic code. Eventually, the Japanese decided to go south. That's where the more immediately exploitable resources were. And you're listening to Stephen Ambrose tell the story of 1941 like nobody else can. And by the way, Stephen Ambrose's work on World War II including the D-Day Museum, which turned into the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Well, his legacy lives on there and in so many other places and quarters in this country. And as always, all of our great history stories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more about what they do and all of their online offerings. And Stephen Ambrose telling the story of a year, and in this case, a pretty important one. 1941. The Philippines wasn't pumping any oil. The Philippines didn't have a lot in the way of minerals. The Philippines' biggest cash crop was mahogany, which wasn't all that important or valuable to the Japanese, to a Japan at war. So why attack the Philippines at all? Why bring the United States into this war? Because they sit right in the middle of our line of communications. And Roosevelt, in order to deter the Japanese, had just sent America's super weapon out to Clark Field outside of Manila, 50 B-17 four-engine bombers, as, as it were, to, to tell the Japanese, yes, if you do attack to the south, I'm going to interdict your supply columns with these B-17s. Okay, the thinking in the Japanese high command then beginning with this idea that we're going to have to attack the Philippines, led to the development of a plan to attack, of all places, out here in the middle of the Pacific at Honolulu. 
Now, why on earth, if they're going south, are they going to be sending forces out on a flanking operation out into the middle of a vast ocean? Well, because Roosevelt also was a deterrent to the Japanese, had beginning in 1941 stationed the United States Pacific Fleet, taking it out of San Diego and putting it in base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And Admiral Yamamoto, the Japanese naval commander-in-chief, <coughs> who had studied in the United States and who knew Americans and who had quite a reputation as a poker player, said, listen, if we're going to get America into this war by attacking the Philippines on the first day, we're going to have to take out the American fleet in Hawaii. That's the only way that we can proceed with our conquest of the Dutch East Indies and Malaya. Otherwise, the Americans will be too powerful. They'll be sailing out of Hawaii, coming across the Western Pacific and hitting our lines of advance. So we've got to hit Pearl Harbor. We've got to hit the American fleet at Pearl Harbor. We've got to take it out. And it can be done. He came up with a brilliant plan using five aircraft carriers to sail to within 200 miles of Hawaii and then launch from these five aircraft carriers, dive bombers and fighter bombers and Zeros, the fighter airplane, on the American base in Hawaii. And the Army looked at this idea and they said, you're nuts. But Yamamoto insisted that if we're going to go to war, we've got to knock out the American fleet first. Now, he was a complex guy, a very intelligent man. He went on to say at these staff meetings and to the Emperor on one occasion, we can't ever win a war with the United States. I've been there. I've seen the United States Center. And if we get these people riled up, they'll fight to the finish. You may have this contempt for them, but I've studied the American Civil War, and I know what kind of stock these Americans come from. And we'll never win a war with the United States. But if you're insisting on going to war with the United States, for God's sakes, you've got to start it with an attack on Hawaii and take out the American fleet in a surprise attack, just as the Japanese had taken out the Russian fleet at the beginning of the war between Russia and Japan in 1905 with a surprise attack. And eventually he was able to convince his colleagues and the general staff and the attack on Pearl Harbor was laid on. And the Japanese began to prepare for it with some very extensive, very well executed, well thought out, well done training operations. Now we come to a, a question that has a real life to it. It's gone on for now 55 years and bids fair to go on for another 100 or more. The question is, did Franklin Roosevelt know the Japanese were going to attack us at Pearl Harbor? Did Roosevelt take the back door to war? Did Roosevelt trick and maneuver his country into war? Uh, yes and no is the answer. I think critics can rightly point to some of his actions with regard to Japan, especially with freezing assets at a time when he knew from their exchanges that they were feeling desperate and were going to strike. No to any specific charge that he knew an attack was coming on Pearl Harbor. I think on December 7, 1941, Franklin Roosevelt expected the Japanese to attack the Philippines. 
probably that day. I think he was astonished as everybody else in the world was when they attacked Pearl Harbor. <coughs> People say that, the, that Roosevelt had information that he didn't share uh, with his commanders in Hawaii. And this is just nonsense. The information that he kept from them. Well, this information was coming up from serving Army and Navy officers, and those were their friends out there in the Philippines and in Hawaii, and you think that they would have sat on this kind of information if they'd had anything so clear-cut as that? What went wrong at Pearl Harbor? The, the reason that Pearl Harbor excites this uh, is partly Franklin Roosevelt was Franklin Roosevelt. He was a very hated man and a very much loved man. He was one of the most polarizing of our presidents, at least as much so as Richard Nixon. And the people who hated Roosevelt tended to be, obviously they were far more Republican than not, and tended to be isolationist. And they were therefore receptive to this argument that Roosevelt had taken us through the back door to war and that Roosevelt, that SOB, had known all along that that attack was coming and he didn't tell those boys and he didn't give them a chance. And you'd hear that in bars and in country clubs all over the country. Uh, <coughs> there, there, there just isn't anything to it. Roosevelt did not know an attack was coming on Pearl Harbor any more than anyone else did. Roosevelt basked in the same uh, cocoon uh, that uh, Short and Kimmel did, that General Marshall did, that everybody in the American military and everybody in the country did. Nobody thought that, I mean, to put it bluntly, nobody thought that those little yellow bastards could do something like this. That's what it came down to. But Roosevelt, or Marshall had, had described Pearl Harbor as the strongest fortress in the world. He said the Japanese couldn't get within 750 miles of it. Kimmel and Short knew that a war was coming. Everybody knew a war was coming because the negotiations had broken down. We had told the Japanese we're not going to lift this embargo or uh, unfreeze your assets until you get out of Indochina and China. And the Japanese had just spent a lot of blood, treasure, and emotion on taking China and Indochina. They were about to back out, and we knew that. And they knew we weren't going to back down, and so now as Secretary of State Cordell Hull said, now it's up to the Army and the Navy. I withdraw. I'm out of here. That was in the middle of November. And, and they began sending out messages to all the commanders in the Pacific and in Panama and around the world to look out. We're breaking off negotiations, and war is expected at any moment. On December 1st, Kimmel and Short got a message identical from General Marshall in the War Department that began, this is a war warning. And you're listening to Stephen Ambrose, and he is telling the story of 1941 and dealing with the mythology that Roosevelt somehow knew all along that Pearl Harbor was going to be hit and just let it happen. And I think he does a superb job of putting that at bay. That would have been an absolute catastrophe for any president and for the United States to do such a thing. Let's pick up where Ambrose last left off. Now you ask, how on earth could Kimmel and Short be caught by surprise in a situation like this? To add to it, a situation in which the American intelligence had lost the Japanese fleet, the carrier fleet. One of the greatest intelligence blunders of all history. 
the world, the, the Pacific world was about to go to war and American intelligence lost track of the Japanese strongest striking force, didn't know where they were. Didn't know if they had gone south, north, west, where. So how did Kimmel and Short get caught? By surprise. Well, for one, it, it, it's really not difficult to understand, actually. But for one thing, the Japanese did everything right. From the moment that the carriers left Tokyo the, uh, Harbor, they uh, maintained radio silence, even very low volume uh, talk between ships themselves. Everything was done by semaphore. They could receive messages from Japan, but they didn't send out anything at all. So that our breaking of the Japanese code did us no good, because it doesn't do any good to have broken the code when they're not using the radio. Kimmel and Short prepared for war by doing the sensible things that a commander on Hawaii ought to do. They put their planes together in the middle of the runway, wingtip to wingtip. That's much the best way to protect your planes from saboteurs. And there was a great fear the Japanese saboteurs were on Pearl Harbor, and that they would strike when hostilities began. Uh, Another factor in, in how the Japanese pulled this one off was American, not, I don't want to say complacency because that's not what I mean. The American, it had become routine. There had been so many false alarms. There had been so many times in 1941 when negotiations were breaking down and people were worried that war might come at any moment that there had been too many full alerts, which of course interfered with drill and training. So that even when warned to be on full alert, they, they weren't, they couldn't. They, they couldn't take it seriously enough. A lot of little things went wrong in the morning of December 7th for the US Navy. We did have radar. We were just coming on to radar. It was, it was uh, not common issue, it was still experimental, but radar was there. And we'd gotten some tips from the British, who had used radar very successfully in the Battle of Britain. And there was a radio station on Hawaii that was beaming out in the direction that the Japanese planes were coming from in the pre-dawn hours of the seventh day of December of 1941. And these radar operators, they were out there for a state of time. They were, they were staying at their post until 7 a.m. And then they were supposed to be relieved by another team. Well, 7 a.m. came, and the other team wasn't there, and they noted some blips on the screen. They saw planes were approaching, and they got on the phone and called back uh, to base, and the, and the lieutenant back there, the duty officer, said, oh, well, they we're expecting some uh, B-17s to be coming in from San Francisco, and those must be them. So you can go ahead and shut down your radar for the day. And so they shut it down and went back. The first shots fired at Pearl Harbor were fired by an American destroyer that caught a Japanese midget submarine coming through into Pearl Harbor and attacked it at about 4.30 in the morning, successfully. Four of those midget submarines, by the way, came into to the harbor that day, and all four, now three of the four were sunk. I guess one of them did get away. They, they didn't do much damage. And then, it, as, as all the world knows, at 7.30, the Japanese crying out, Torah, 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 came roaring in and saw a sight that they never thought in their wildest dreams they would see. The American battleships and cruisers tied up 
side by side, stem to stern, all together in one place. Can't miss it. And they just blew the American Pacific Fleet out of the water. Six battleships sunk in one hour. They hadn't sunk that many battleships in the greatest naval battle ever fought at Jutland in a whole day of fighting. Japanese got six in an hour. Uh, three cruisers and, and many destroyers damaged, 3,600 men killed. The fighter air force on the island, the land-based U.S. Army Air Force and the Marine contingent were just destroyed on the ground. And it was a humiliating defeat for the United States. And it was the best thing that ever happened to the United States and to Franklin Roosevelt. It did it was the one act, the only act, that could have brought this country together. And it did. It helped enormously that the Japanese, who were so efficient and indeed brilliant in the way they carried out the attack, were politically so inept that they forgot to hand in or did not manage to hand in the declaration of war until one hour after the attack began. And that became a newsreel that I think in my lifetime I must have seen a thousand times. They showed it to us, it seems like every newsreel during World War II, of the Japanese ambassadors arriving to present the declaration of war to the Secretary of State an hour after Pearl Harbor had started. Uh, the national outrage was palpable. You could feel it, you could smell it, you could touch it. The, the sense of uh, we've, we're, we're all in this together, we've got to have revenge. Feelings that Roosevelt would never, had not been able to, would never have been able to produce without Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor did the thing that Yamamoto had most feared. It, it, Yamamoto knew, it, as I say, that Japan can't win such a war. He did think if we knock out their fleet, It'll take them two years to build a new one. Meanwhile, we'll build a defensive perimeter in the Pacific that'll be so expensive for them to attack that they'll give it up and agree to a compromise peace that'll allow us to keep China. In a way, Yamamoto's strategy was similar to Ho Chi Minh's. When you fight a democracy, you just outweigh them. Just keep inflicting casualties, and pretty soon they'll quit. Just won't be important enough to them. Pearl Harbor made it important enough. Pearl Harbor meant that we were going to go on to the end, whatever, in this war. Absolutely. Now, added to the shame of Pearl Harbor was what happened in the Philippines, where the Japanese caught Douglas MacArthur's B-17s on the ground on Clark Field, lined up wingtip to wingtip, protected by sentries from possible saboteurs coming in from the jungle, but without any anti-aircraft guns looking up because the nearest Japanese base was 20 miles beyond their maximum, the known maximum range of their zeros. But the Japanese pilots who knew how to maintain these RPMs so that they never varied one little millimeter from it for hours on end, got that extra 20 miles out of their zeros and got over Clark Field and destroyed America's Air Force, America's Bomber Air Force, 50 planes in the Pacific. And this added to the national humiliation. <coughs> Roosevelt spoke for all Americans. 
the next day in a joint session of Congress yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. He asked the Congress to recognize that a state of war now existed between the Empire of Japan and the United States, and Congress did so with only one dissenting vote. That came from a congresswoman from Missoula, Montana, who had also voted against entering into World War I. And so America was at war, but only on one front. Roosevelt had not asked for a declaration of war against Germany. He had no more reason to ask for a declaration of war against Germany on December 8th than he had had on December 6th. Germany hadn't attacked the United States, Japan had. But all the plans called for fighting the war against Germany first. And this put Roosevelt in something of a dilemma, and we don't know what he would have done about it. Uh, how he would have handled that problem. Hitler solved it for him by inexplicably declaring war on the United States, a decision that no one has ever understood. He was not required to do it by his pact with Japan, which was a defensive pact. It brought him no benefits. It brought in now uh, uh, the United States as his sworn enemy. And so 1941 came to an end with the United States now fully involved in, but still woefully unprepared for, the Second World War. And you've been listening to the great Stephen Ambrose, and thanks to his estate for letting us use so much of this remarkable storytelling, this time about the year 1941, thanks to Greg Hengler for all the work he does on these pieces. And if you want to hear more from Stephen Ambrose, from his storytelling on the Transcontinental Railroad to the building of the B-24 Liberators, that itself is a heck of a story. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and just type in the word Ambrose on the search bar. And his work will come up, but we'll have much more from him. And special thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College, our sponsors for all history stories. And it's the perfect place to send a child to school, a young adult to school, to college, to learn about all the things that are good in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale or you're older and have already gone to college, sign up for their online courses. They're free. They're great Go to hillsdale.edu, the Constitution 101 course. I learned more in that course about the Constitution than three years at the University of Virginia School of Law, and that's no lie. Go to hillsdale.edu. The story of 1941 is told by Stephen Ambrose here on Our American Stories.